All right. Well, I've got some good news and I've got some bad news. Which one do you want first? You want the bad news. Okay, here's the bad news. You're going to die. I mean, hopefully not today. Some of you, older folks, probably sooner than others of us, but you're going to die. I mean, the mortality rate to this point historically has been 100% pretty much, with only a couple rare exceptions. The good news is that you're dead already. Or, if you're not, you can be. And key to all of this is Jesus' own death. We've been studying Paul's first letter to the Corinthians, and Paul says in the beginning of chapter 15 of 1 Corinthians, Now, my brothers and sisters, I want to remind you of the gospel that I preached to you, that which you received and on which you've taken your stand. By this gospel you are saved if you hold firmly to the word that I preached to you. Otherwise, you believed in vain. For what I received, I passed on to you as of first importance. Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, that He was buried, that He was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures, and that He appeared to Peter and then to the twelve. After that, He appeared to more than 500 of the brothers at the same time, most of whom are still living, though some have fallen asleep. He then appeared to James and to all the apostles, and last of all, He appeared to me also as to one born abnormally. Because I'm the least of the apostles. I don't even deserve to be called an apostle, frankly, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. And His grace to me was not without effect. No, I worked harder than all of them. Yet not I, but the grace of God that was with me. So then whether it was I or they, this is what we preach, and this is what you believe. This chapter of 1 Corinthians, this 15th chapter, is all about resurrection. We'll get to that Sunday. But before you can have anybody rising from the dead, he has to be what first? Dead. Kind of be getting things out of order, wouldn't you, if somebody were rising from the dead without being dead first? Now, the fact is, Jesus was stone cold dead. It's interesting here in chapter 15 of 1 Corinthians, Paul starts off this lengthy, majestic meditation on the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ and what that means for us. He starts it off by reminding his friends in Corinth of what they already know. And the reason they already know it is because everybody knew this. Paul here is relating a very, very, very early confession of the church. Paul's writing this to the church in Corinth, maybe 25 or so years after Christ's death, but in that time, there has been the opportunity for the church to work up a few statements of faith, to work up a few pithy sayings to summarize what their message is, to get a few worship tunes that 
got to be earworms and stuck in the head. And so we find from time to time in Paul's letters that his style changes. All of a sudden, it's, it's like he's quoting somebody else because he probably is. And this is one of those places where Paul not only sounds a little different, but he also introduces this with a kind of technical formula that's sort of like using quotes. Except if you use air quotes and you're writing, that doesn't help you. And if you're writing in Greek, you don't have quotation marks at this point. But he says that I am passing on, I passed on to you what I received as of first importance. What Paul is referring there to is to this testimony, this truth, this story that Paul didn't make up. That Paul didn't devise and Paul didn't elaborate, but Paul was given this and he passed it on to his friends in Corinth. Paul was the person who planted the church in Corinth. The most important thing, of course, is that he planted it and he says this earlier on in the letter you'll remember, is that this is all founded on Christ. And so that's the first thing that he had to say. He's passing on as a first importance that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures. And that He was buried. And then that He was raised on the third day also according to the Scriptures. The the first two of those three points may seem kind of redundant, right? When we say that Christ died for our sins... And the idea that he was buried would sort of seem like unnecessary detail to add to that, right? I mean, if you're if you're trying to get together a a really kind of pithy, lapidary statement of your faith, you you would want to excise that, right? I mean, you can imagine Hemingway coming along and just knocking out that second bit. Well, he died, and then of course something would have been done with the body. One author says it would be like saying, "I walked down the street on my feet." Of course. But it seems that the church from very, very early on wanted to make it clear not only that the church had to tell a message of Jesus' life and not just to tell a message of Jesus' resurrection, but to tell the message of His death and His certain death Involving his burial. And when you read the different stories of Jesus' crucifixion in the Gospel accounts, they have varying details. Sometimes you find out from one Gospel writer about certain people being on the scene. Sometimes you'll find out about things that are said from one Gospel writer but not another. But they all have a number of elements in common. I'd like to talk about the violent ones. The first, of course, is that Jesus, upon His arrest, is taken to be examined before the Jewish leaders. Well, they are not at all happy with Him. They would like to put Him to death, but they don't have the authority to. They've got limited authority over practical matters involving the temple and 
issues of, of law and disposition of property and family relations and that kind of thing. But if somebody's guilty of a capital offense, the high priest doesn't have the authority to do anything about it. Now, Rome is the authority in Jerusalem that really has the power. And Rome is being represented at this point by Pontius Pilate, who is a ruthless and generally effective administrator. If you want to know how the Roman Empire worked, a good introduction would be the Sopranos. Or, if you don't have that much time, the Godfather movies. fact is, in the Roman Empire, you're only as good as your last envelope. You get to have power and prestige in the Roman Empire by keeping the taxes flowing up and by keeping insurrection down. So Pilate ended up in Judea because he had gotten promoted. He had proven effective at putting down those who would cause trouble and in ensuring that the flow of tax revenue continued into the emperor. One of the ways that Rome tried to keep trouble down was by making an example of troublemakers. See, Jesus was by no means the first young Jewish leader who attracted the negative attention of Roman authorities. He wasn't the last either. And Romans had as a special treat for people who caused the greatest trouble a punishment that was not just deadly, not just painful, but humiliating. In fact, designed to strike terror into the hearts of the people that they ruled. And the first step in this process was the flagellation. That is to say, the process of beating the condemned person to within an inch of his life. That's just the appetizer. That's just to get things started. The person is found guilty, and he's beaten. Sometimes you get beaten even if you weren't found guilty. That's what Pilate wanted to do with Jesus, right? I mean, I, I imagine one of the hardest moments of Jesus' life may have been when, when Pilate said, oh, I, you know, I can't find anything wrong with him, so let's just have him beaten, and then we'll be done with it. Jesus is all geared up, ready to die for the world's sins, and he finds out he's just going to get beaten to within an inch of his life. But no, Pilate is compelled by political realities, to do as he is being demanded, as the, as the Jewish authorities are demanding of him. And he first has Jesus flogged. And Jesus would have been flogged by Roman soldiers, who did not get to be Roman soldiers by being especially erudite or gentle, by having great pastoral qualities or the ability to solve problems, except by violence. Roman soldiers were very, very good at inflicting pain and death on whomever they were sicked on. And so Jesus would have been beaten 
severely. In fact, we know that he was beaten severely not only because the Gospels say he was beaten and because we know the nature of Roman execution, but because according to the story, Jesus is physically unable to get his cross even up to the place where he is going to be crucified. Now we don't know if Jesus would have had to carry the entire cross or simply the cross bar. It would have been heavy, but not impossible for a person in decent health to haul that up the hill. But we know that Jesus fell down and that ultimately this guy named Simon from Libya, who was in town for the festival, was pressed into service and forced to carry Jesus' cross for him. This was not because the people carrying out the execution decided to give Jesus a break. It's not because they took pity on him and wanted to lighten his load a little bit. It was because they wanted to get on with the work day and finish it at some point. And you're not done with the crucifixion until the person is crucified. And he's not going to get crucified unless he and his cross are at the top of the hill. So after being beaten severely, Jesus would have been crucified. Nailed by his wrists and his feet to a sturdy cross. And again, we don't know exactly how big the cross was. It could be that it was as big as that wooden cross right there. Obviously, if he's nailed up there, the person's not going to be coming off no matter how low to the ground you have him. It may be that he was put up higher so that more people could see, by way of example, what happens when you come up against Rome. But we do know that Jesus would have been crucified through the wrists, because if you crucify somebody through the palms, the weight of the body is going to rip the flesh of the hand. He would have been crucified through the wrists, through the feet, and hung up to die a slow an agonizing and humiliating death. If you've ever seen a painting of the crucifixion, or you've ever seen a crucifix, which is a cross with Jesus on it, suffering, you'll notice Jesus is often portrayed wearing a loincloth of some sort. This is because artists will not be artists if they can't sell their work. And there's not much of a market for crucifixes and paintings with naked saviors on them. After all, there is a name for artists who can't sell their work, and that name is barista. No, Jesus would have been crucified like everybody else who was crucified, buck naked, exposed to shame, exposed to whatever violence anybody passing by might like to inflict upon him, exposed to being spit at, mocked, ridiculed. And that's just what people can do. No doubt there were birds circling overhead, swooping down from time to time to see if 
the meal was ready. Flies, dogs. The person crucified was utterly helpless. The person crucified was utterly humiliated. But a person crucified was not utterly at the point of death, at least not at first. The fact is, the place where the Romans would nail the hand and feet would not be one where a person would bleed out quickly. In fact, you didn't die if you're crucified by loss of blood. You died technically, of asphyxiation. Usually what would happen is when you were dropped onto that cross, or if your cross was held up and then dropped into a hole so that it would stay where where they put it, often that would mean a dislocation of your upper body. And the weight of the body would make it difficult to breathe. So in order to get a breath into your lungs, you would have to somehow push or pull yourself up just to get the breath in. And then you'd have to do that again. And again. And again. Until you simply couldn't do it anymore. Until you were so tired so utterly spent that even the will to live that is hardwired into every human being was not enough to enable you to make that last desperate effort. We know that the soldiers who beat Jesus must have done an especially good job of it if they were the same team assigned to the people crucified on either side of Jesus. Because those people being crucified were still alive as the sun was about to go down. and Jewish leaders didn't want to have anybody hanging up on a cross at the time, so they asked Pilate and he politely agreed to break those prisoners' legs. It's really hard to push yourself up to grab a breath if your legs are broken, which is why they quickly died. And when they went to Jesus, they found out that he had already breathed his last. Really, all the Gospels say the same thing, that he breathed his last or he gave up his spirit. Words for spirit and breath are the same in the Greek. Now, the Gospels testify to Jesus' flagellation. They testify to his crucifixion. And they testify to his expiration. Jesus was really and truly dead. John gives us the detail of the soldier wanting to make sure, so he sticks the spear in Jesus' side, and blood and the water run out. So Jesus, we know from the Gospels, was scourged, beaten. He was crucified. He did die. And then we know that he was taken down from the cross. We have on your bulletin Donatello's carving depicting this mourning over the body of the deceased Jesus. 
The people who took him down, we know from the Gospels, prepared him to be buried. We know that he was placed in a tomb. We get the detail that it was a new tomb. Nobody had ever been buried there. Jesus was the first. It's these little details in the Gospels that give a little color to the story, but it also, in a sense, forestalls some of the possible objections, right? Well, what if there was a switcheroo with the bodies? Well, no, actually nobody had been buried in that tomb before Jesus was the first one. Some people would say, well, maybe Jesus didn't really die. Maybe he just, like, passed out. It's tough to see Roman soldiers being that incompetent. You'd have to believe that they would have screwed up the flagellation so badly that Jesus didn't get softened up enough. That they had messed up the crucifixion so badly that Jesus wasn't set up to be exposed painfully. That somehow people who did this as a matter of course didn't notice that somebody they'd taken down off the cross was not really and truly dead. You'd have to believe that the people who buried him at a time when people did not go to funeral homes to have the remains of somebody they loved disposed of. When people were personally familiar with the process of taking somebody who was once alive and having that person's body placed in a tomb. You'd have to believe that everybody there was just confused and that they somehow missed the fact that he was just asleep. Now the Gospel tells us, all four of the Gospels tell us that Jesus was really and truly dead. They did not bury somebody who was asleep. They buried a dead man. The Gospels also talk about resurrection. We'll get to that in a couple days. All of them do testify to that as well. But they make it abundantly clear that that first precondition for resurrection is met. That Jesus really and truly died. And the significance of that, we're told by the author of the letter to the Hebrews, is that just as in the Old Covenant, according to Torah, according to the law that Joe mentioned in his reading from that paraphrase of Romans, just as the blood of bulls and of goats, of birds, was given by people as they were trying to make their offerings, well, so Jesus' blood was presented, but even in a different way. See, the blood of bulls and goats was presented in the temple that was right there in Jerusalem that you could see, that you could walk close to, depending on whether you were A male, you could get even closer. If you're a priest, you could even walk up and touch the thing. But 
writer of Hebrews says, that's just a copy. That's just a shadow of the real temple, the real place where God is truly worshipped in the heavens. And in fact, Jesus' blood opened a way for His people in that real temple, that real place where God is worshipped in the heavenly realms. Just as the blood of a bull or a goat would open a way for people to come and approach God, but only temporarily, Jesus' blood made it possible for people to do that once for all. He said, the writer of Hebrews says that when, Jesus, when Christ came as a high priest of the good things that are already here, He went through that greater and more perfect worship space, tent that is not man-made, that is to say not a part of this creation. He didn't enter by means of the blood of goats and calves, but He entered the most holy place once for all by His own blood having obtained eternal redemption. The blood of goats and bulls and the ashes of a heifer sprinkled on those who were ceremonially unclean. They, they sanctify them so that they're outwardly clean. Well, how much more then will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered Himself unblemished to God, cleanse our consciences from acts that lead to death so that we may serve the living God? For this reason, Christ is the mediator of a new covenant that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance now that He has died as a ransom to set them free from the sins committed under the first covenant. And so he goes on to say, therefore, since we have that boldness to enter the most holy place, to approach God, that way that is entered, that is made open to us by the blood of Jesus, by this new and living way opened for us through the curtain that is His body. And since we have a great priest over the house of God, then let us draw near to God with a sincere heart in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled to cleanse us from our guilty consciences, having our bodies washed with pure water. Let's hold unswervingly to that hope we profess because the one who promised us is faithful. So we've got these two great holidays, these two great feasts of the Jewish people brought together. In the, in the Gospels, it's talking about Jesus as the Passover lamb, as the sacrificial lamb in Hebrews, the writer is talking about Jesus as the atoning sacrifice on Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement. Showing that Jesus fulfills both of those things. And so in much the same way, our two sacraments of baptism and the Eucharist are wrapped up in this whole thing. Paul says in his letter to the Romans, he says, we died to sin. We died. And because of that, we can't live in it any longer. All of us who are baptized into Christ Jesus, we're baptized into His death. So those who are Christians have died. If you're a Christian, 
you're dead already. In fact, not only did we die, we were buried with Him through baptism into death. But not just so that we'd be dead. We were buried with Him through baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. See, if we've been united with Him like this in His death, then we certainly will also be united with Him in His resurrection. We know that our old self was crucified with Him so that the body of sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves to sin. After all, anyone who died is free from sin. But if we died with Christ, then we are sure that we will also live with Him. Because we know that since Christ was raised from the dead, He can't die again. Death no longer has mastery over Him. The death He died, He died to sin once for all. But the life He lives, He lives to God. Those of us who are in Christ, those of us who are His people, we have died with Him to sin. That enables us to live with Him. But the first step, of course, is to die. So if you're dead, that's great news. If you're dead, then you know that there is nothing that you can do for yourself, right? Right? I mean, it, can, can a dead body do anything for itself? No. Right? It, it's kind of like a, a teenager on Saturday morning at about 10.30. That you just can't get them to do anything. Right? Dead people can't do anything for themselves. So what you're not supposed to do is try to figure out how you can somehow get your act together. No, you need to own the fact that you're dead. One author says that all too often the, the Christian faith is described as trying to learn how to straighten up and fly right. You say that's not the point at all. The point is not to straighten up and fly right. The point is to recognize that your life has the glide path of a Coke bottle. And a broken one at that. What you need when you're dead is an embalmer. Not a self-help book. Or, however impossibly, someone who can raise the dead. So if you're dead, then you've already taken care of the first part. Those of us who are baptized into Christ have died with Him. If you're not dead yet, you can be dead. You can join the rest of us who are. That's also great news, by the way. That death is something you can choose. It's only bad news, the fact that you will eventually physically die, if, of course, you die without being dead yet. And it's also bad news, by the way, if you live without being dead yet. Or if you are dead, if you live like you're not dead yet. Because what Paul says is if we've died with Christ, then we're going to live with Him. And that life, yes, is something that comes later on in full, but it starts now. 
But again, that's in a couple days. Right now, right here, we're talking about the fact that Jesus died. And that those of us who are in Jesus have died as well. So when we take the Eucharist, when we celebrate communion as we're about to do, we testify literally with our words to the fact that we are people who believe that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures. And we enact this by taking the bread and the wine in memory of the meal He had with His disciples on the night that He was betrayed, the eve of His actual death. When He said to them, this is My body which is broken for you. This is My blood of the new covenant which is shed for you. Every time we eat the bread and drink the cup, we proclaim the Lord's death until He comes, Paul says earlier in 1 Corinthians. That's what communion means. We're dead. We're all dead together. And because of that, we're alive. So will you please stand with me as we recite together these words in the Nicene Creed that God's people have testified to throughout the centuries as we affirm our faith. Then after that, I'll invite you to come up by the center up where Kevin and I will have the bread and the wine. We have both wine and grape juice. The red is wine. The white is grape juice. The bread is unleavened. Please take the elements back with you down those little stairs and go back to your seat. And then once everybody has been served and we're all back together, then I will read the words that Jesus spoke. And we will partake of the elements together. We believe in one God, the Father, the Almighty, Maker of heaven and earth, of all that is, seen and unseen. We believe in one Lord, Jesus Christ, the only Son of God, eternally begotten of the Father, God from God, light from light, true God from true God, begotten not made, of one being with the Father, Through Him all things were made. For us and for our salvation, He came down from heaven. By the power of the Holy Spirit, He became incarnate from the Virgin Mary and was made man. For our sake, He was crucified under Pontius Pilate. He suffered death and was buried. On the third day, He rose again in accordance with the Scriptures. He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father. He will come again in glory to judge the living and the dead, and His kingdom will have no end. We believe in the Holy Spirit, the Lord, the giver of life, who proceeds from the Father and the Son. With the Father and the Son, He is worshipped and glorified. He has spoken through the prophets. We believe in one holy, Catholic, and apostolic church. We acknowledge one baptism for the forgiveness of sins. We look for the resurrection of the dead, and the life of the world to come. Amen.